Turn with me to Luke 23. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And this evening, you will need a Bible. We're going to go back and forth a bit through Luke's Gospel on our way to discovering a really important truth about Good Friday. Pray for James and Becky. In fact, even right now, Lord, we lift up James and Becky. We pray for Greg and Milagros and Benny and the rest of the Hope for the Hood team as they reach out to their community, as they gather in your name, as they celebrate this Good Friday. Be with them, anoint them. We pray that their ministry would bear much fruit in your name and for your glory. They're doing something a little different. They're showing the passion of the Christ film where they are ministering in Wichita's North End. It, it, when, when they first mentioned to it, my response was, okay, but who hasn't seen it? Except if you're not saved, <laughs> what reason would you have had to watch it? I, I've lost track of the number of times I've seen it. I, I, I saw it probably 10, 20 times in the first couple months after it was released. Was that like 2004? Because, because when it was released, the church where I was serving, we, we were renting out whole theaters. And, and we were doing what Hope for the Hood is doing tonight, in asking people, hey, invite friends to see a dramatic presentation of the gospel. And then at the end of it, pastors like me would stand up and give an invitation. And it was a powerful tool. I'm glad that it is still being used but it also misses something. If you've seen the movie, or even if you haven't, you've read the gospel accounts. You know the story. You know how those last 24 hours before the cross unfold, Jesus has supper with his disciples, prays in the garden late into the night, betrayed by Judas, arrested, held overnight illegally, no food, no drink, no sleep that we're aware of. Beaten and spat upon repeatedly, that we do know. So by the time we pick up the story in Luke 23, by the time Jesus is carrying that crossbeam for his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, taking a longer route than necessary, so that as many people as possible would have a chance to see this criminal in his humiliation, in his degradation, the warning for those who would speak against the state. He had already been tortured by professionals. Tens of thousands of people were crucified under Rome. By the time Jesus was crucified, they'd gotten really good at it. They knew how to calibrate the, the torture to provide maximum pain for the longest possible duration. And so as we read, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a serene, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. By that time, he'd already been scourged. a cat of nine tails into some of those strips of leather 
were knotted sheep bones in some of those strips, rocks in some of those strips, iron pellets. By the time he was walking the streets of Jerusalem, he'd already been beaten, scourged, flogged until his back was laid open like hamburger. He'd already had that crown of thorns thrust into his skull. Thorns sharp like fish hooks. Thrust through the dermis until it's scraped against the bone. By the time he's carrying the cross beam that would be his cross, his beard had already been torn out. Isaiah 52, 14, his visage, his appearance, marred more than any man's. One of the criticisms of the Passion of the Christ movie was that in trying to capture the reality of those events, they ended up producing violence porn. That's what some people labeled it. The amount, the degree, the kind of violence depicted, the mutilation, the humiliation, it's unnecessary. It's fetishism, went the critique. The problem with that argument the problem with that position, if you compare the gospel accounts with the movie, the movie actually lowballs it. The horrors committed against the person of Christ were even worse, even more horrific, even more extreme than Mel Gibson dared depict. It's not to say the movie does a bad job. Portraying Jesus' torture and crucifixion, it's mostly faithful to the gospel accounts. There's some random Catholic stuff dropped in. It's subtle enough that if you don't have a Catholic background, you probably don't notice it. But it's mostly consistent with the Bible. Except there's one thing that the movie leaves out. And to be honest, I never noticed. I've always overlooked it but but continue reading where we left off Luke 23 verse 27 a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him followed him that makes sense I mean there were people following him as 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 he carried the cross in the movie and it makes sense that they would be lamenting, that they would be mourning. All the way back in Luke 2, Gabriel, when he's telling Mary about the ministry that God has selected her for, also tells her a sword will pierce through your own soul. I think that sword was well inserted by this time. I'm confident that Mary, with a mother's heart, was following, wailing, lamenting. And it makes sense that others would have the same reaction. But here's the part that I tend to read past and what Mel Gibson omitted. The part that we overlook is Jesus' response, verse 28. Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. 
then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? What do we do with that? I mean, it's sort of cryptic and insensitive all at once, right? Almost reminds me of my dad. If you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. With maybe a fortune cookie kind of a proverb tacked on at the end. But lurking in these words, lurking in Jesus' response to his followers' lament, which, which incidentally is his last fully formed instruction to them before the cross. On the cross, yes, we have Jesus' last seven statements, and sometimes we spend Good Friday looking at them, but those are fragments. Those are quotes, many of them, references to psalms and other scriptures, things that he gasped out. But in this last directive, last conversation, if you will, with his followers, we find an idea that really has the potential to change the way we think about Good Friday. Let's look at the last part first. The days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Sort of the opposite of Jewish culture, which revered mothers and motherhood. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? It sounds cryptic, greenwood, dry wood, but it actually isn't hard to grasp. The idea here is fairly straightforward. Poetically, Jesus is warning them, if this is what happens to the innocent, what's going to happen to the guilty? If the Son of God, a lamb without spot or blemish, guilty of nothing, can be abused mercilessly, butchered horrifically, what do you think is going to happen to Israel? That's Jesus' question, and it's not the first time he's talked about this. In fact, if you go back and do some homework, it's actually the seventh time, provocatively enough. The seventh time that Jesus has warned of judgment coming against Israel. Destruction that he says here and elsewhere will be so great, mothers will wish they never had kids, people in general will wish they'd never been born. Why? Scroll back a couple chapters. Go to Luke chapter 19 and look at verse 43. Most of you know the passage. If you don't know the passage, you're familiar with the idea. Luke 19 verse 43. Days will come upon you, Jesus speaking, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is Jesus speaking to Jerusalem, and by extension, Jerusalem's leaders, her priests, her residents. And he's saying, you refuse to recognize that I am the Messiah. I came at the time that Daniel said that I would. I came to the place Micah said that I would. I've been doing the miracles Isaiah said to look out for. I'm everything God told you to expect. And your response? Yeah, we think we want someone else. 
And if we turn back to Luke chapter 10, we're going to go back to Luke 10 and then we'll work our way back forward. We see that this, this idea, this theme of Israel's rejection of the Christ and God's judgment on those who reject the Christ actually runs all through Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 10, look at verse 10. Jesus is sending out to the disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. And in sending them out, he tells them, chapter 10, verse 10, whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into its streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. If a city rejects your message... If a city isn't interested in hearing that the Son of God is in your midst, it'll be worse for that city than for Sodom. That's bad. Go forward one chapter. Luke 11. We find the Pharisees challenging Jesus' ministry. Luke doesn't tell us it was the Pharisees, but Matthew does. The Pharisees are all, Jesus does what he does by the power of Satan. Jesus' reply, Luke 11, verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You're either for me or against me, Jesus says. Choose wisely. You're either for me or against me, and it won't go well for those who are against me. Later that same chapter, still Luke 11, crowd gathers. They're seeking a sign. Because they're like that. Jesus, you've taught in a way that no one has ever taught. You've done miracles no one has ever done. You fulfill prophecies no one has come close to fulfilling. Give us something else. We want more. It's not enough. Jesus' answer, verse 29, this is an evil generation. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. But where's the repentance? Jesus is saying, you are the people born in the one place at the one time in all of history privileged to see the Son of Man. And you won't receive me? You won't acknowledge me? Okay. Well, then what you will be is judged. What you will be is condemned. And as he keeps going, Jesus narrows his focus more and more. He gets more and more concrete about the judgment that he has in mind. He goes on to specify ground zero for the judgment will be Jerusalem. Makes sense. It's the city of Israel's leaders, the city of Israel's priests, the city of people who more than anyone should have known what was going on, should have recognized Jesus for who he was, should have realized that this was the day, the time of their visitation. So they will bear, Jesus says, the worst of God's judgment. Not just for their treatment of him, look at verse 50, but for their treatment 
of generations of prophets who spoke about him, who called upon the nation to repent. Still Luke 11, verse 50. The blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Maybe, will be, is going to be. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Flip over to chapter 13, more and more concrete, prophesying not only the brutal death of Jerusalem's leaders and residents, but the destruction of the temple. And again, he doesn't make us guess about why. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, chapter 13, verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. I love you. I want nothing more than to nurture you and care for you, and you won't let me. See, verse 35, your house has left you desolate. So as we now turn back to Luke 19, We've been there before, but let's go there again. Having taken a quick stroll through Luke's gospel, we now see, we realize, the week before the crucifixion, Luke 19, Jesus isn't saying anything new. He's not telling them anything he hasn't told them before. This pronouncement has been a long time coming. Verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially in this year day, the things that make for your peace. If you had known, if you had recognized the Messiah who is the Prince of Peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. It's describing the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The starvation, the cannibalism that resulted from it. And the reason that people in that day, in that place, will wish they hadn't been born is when the Roman soldiers finally break through and level you, verse 44, and your children within you to the ground, they're going to be savage. They're going to be brutal. They're going to commit war crimes. They're going to see how many Jewish babies they can hold on one sword. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. They're going to burn the temple to the ground, and then they're going to take it apart rock by rock to, to salvage the gold that melts between the cracks. And they're going to do it. Why? Verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. But notice, if you've gone away, come back, because this is what we've been building toward. Notice back up in verse 41. Immediately before this dramatic, horrific pronouncement of judgment, what's there? Verse 41, as he drew near, he, Jesus, saw the city and did what? Wept over it. This is the key that unlocks our text back in Luke 23. How so? Back in Luke 23, Jesus is staggering down the Via Dolorosa, bleeding, mutilated, humiliated. And he says to the women, the daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus always seems to reserve his, 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 his most profound insights for the women. 
don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. What's he saying? If we join that together with Luke 19.41, if we join that up with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, it's clear what he's saying. He's saying to the daughters of Jerusalem, he's saying to his followers, to the mourners, don't weep for me, weep with me. He's not telling them to be stoic. He's not saying don't cry. Big girls don't cry. Christians don't cry. Jesus wasn't stoic. Jesus cried more than twice. He's not saying don't cry. He's not saying, no, 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 there's no place for weeping here. And he's saying weep for the right reasons. Weep over the right things. And he's saying that to us tonight as well. I remember screening Passion for the Christ for the first time. Whole theater full of people bawling. And I was one of them. I, st I don't know how many times I've seen it. I still can't see it without crying. I don't know anyone who can. Whether you watch the film, whether you, whether you read the gospel accounts and really put yourself there and visualize what's happening... I don't know how you do that and, and, and not cry. But what are we crying at? What are we crying about? Because Jesus says, don't weep for me. Because he's not there against his will. John 10, he told us, no one can take my life. I'm laying it down. No one could take Jesus anywhere he didn't want to go. One word and a thousand angels would have come crashing down from heaven freeing him and leveling the whole Roman Empire. But Jesus didn't speak that word because he was right where he needed to be, right where he wanted to be. And he says, don't weep for me. He says, don't weep for me. This was the plan all along. Father, Spirit, me, we got together, we agreed on this before together we laid the foundation of the world. We agreed, I would give my life as a sacrifice for many. We agreed, my body would be broken and my blood shed for you, for sinners. He says, don't weep for me. He says, don't weep for me, because as you look at the cross and the events leading up to the cross and the horror of the whole day culminating with the cross and the unimaginable wrath of God poured out on Christ as he hung on the cross, it's not the end of the story. If you're weeping about that, you're forgetting Sunday's coming. You're forgetting what I told you about the end of the story. You're not believing what I said about the resurrection. You're not understanding the victory that I promised, that the prophets prophesied, the victory over sin and death and Satan that's been coming for centuries and that is now at hand. He says, don't weep for me. Because he knows what's about to happen is the very best thing that could possibly happen. The very best thing in the history of the universe. Purchasing the very best future for those who believe and obtaining the absolute greatest glory for God. So don't weep for me, Jesus says. Yes, men are beating me. Yes, all my guys are fleeing from me. 
Soon, nails are going to be driven into me, and God's wrath is going to be crushing me. But I'm rejoicing, Jesus says. I'm rejoicing because I know what all this means. I'm rejoicing because for all of eternity, my bride and I are going to be celebrating. Don't weep for me, Jesus says. Weep with me. Weep for those who won't be joining me, who won't be joining us. Weep for those who reject me, for those who refuse my forgiveness, for those who demand my wrath. That's what Jesus says to the daughters of Jerusalem. That's what Jesus means, Luke 23, 28. And it's what he says to you and I this evening. Jesus says, weep with me. Weep with me for those who scoff at the gospel, for those who cast aside the Bible, for those who resist the Holy Spirit, for those who choose the wrath of God rather than the mercy of God. Weep for those who will experience wrath in this life. We talked about that last weekend. Romans chapter 1. Weep all the more for those who will experience nothing but wrath in the next life. It's a horrific thing, the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 10.31, it's a horrific thing to fall into the hands of the living God, unshielded by Christ's blood. An eternity that even the agony of the cross can only begin to hint at. Think about this. We sometimes say that the worst thing in heaven is better than the best thing on earth. We get excited about that. We say, oh, that's going to be good. I'm looking forward to that. Worst thing in heaven, better than the best thing on earth, that is quite good indeed. But if that's true, then doesn't it follow that the best thing in hell is worse than the worst thing on earth. The best thing in hell is worse than the cross. The cross, at best, gives us a, gives us a look at hell like a page in a magazine, a picture of a, a sunny beach, gives us a preview of a vacation. Or, or a map gives us a preview of a road. The cross is a preview of eternity away from God, and it doesn't do the reality justice. It can't. Weep for those that will be there, Jesus says. Weep for the ones that are choosing that destiny refusing to see the beauty of the cross, placing themselves outside the blessing of the cross, deciding that they don't want the benefit of the cross. It's a different way of looking at Good Friday, I'll admit. But it's entirely biblical. And it's so, so important. Because if, if Good Friday, if we let it, only be about the horror done to Jesus? If we stop it, at, at, okay, I'm going to visualize it, I'm going to meditate it, I'm going to internalize it to the point where I'm physically ill about it, and I'm going to weep about it. If I stop there, I've missed a big part of the point. 
And if Good Friday is only about those who mocked him, struck him, tore at him, scourged him, drove thorns and nails and a spear into him, only to be forgiven by him, that's huge. But it still misses a lot of the point. Even if our Good Friday is about realizing we made that crucifixion necessary, you and me, more than the Roman leaders, more than, uh, sorry, more than the Jewish leaders, more than the Roman soldiers, if, 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 we, if we lay hold of that last verse of that last song, that it was our sin that drove the nails into his hands, that it was my lust and my bitterness and my selfishness and my anger and my unforgiveness that held him there. I can realize all that. I can grieve over that. I can weep over every part of that and I'm still not fully grasping Jesus' point. That having done all he could having done literally everything that could be done to seek and save the lost, Jesus wept because it still wasn't enough for some. There were those who wouldn't let it be enough. And because they refused to let it be enough, they'd be forever lost. Weep with me about that, Jesus says to us. And as we wrap up, he tells us one more thing. He also tells us, before you weep over them, go after them. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when? At the end of his ministry. He wept over Jerusalem knowing Israel's leaders had rejected him. Final answer. But what did he do first? Think back to those passages that we looked at in Luke 10 and 11 and 13 and 19. He sent disciples out to announce him. He went forth himself to teach them. Opened the Bible and showed them put his character on display before them. He warned them again and again. He warned them. Weep with me, Jesus says. Weep over the lost. But before you do, do what I did. Before you give up on them, tell them what my word says and why you believe it. Ex explain to them the urgency, the certainty of judgment apart from the cross. Show them who you are in me. Let them see the joy and the peace and the sanctification and the fruit of forgiveness. Show them who you are in me. Pray for them incessantly. Pray without ceasing for God to soften their hearts, to draw them. And make discipleship a priority, yours and others. Invest in those who do believe. Use your gifts to strengthen the church. Pour into your fellowship that believers would be built up to reach and teach and warn and pray for the lost. Make disciples who are going to make disciples who are going to make disciples. Do the things I did, in other words. 
Do the things I did, Jesus says. Be motivated by, by the same thing I am. Let love compel you. Let love drive you. So when the time for weeping comes, we can weep knowing we've done what we could do. We can weep knowing we've done what he called us to do. We can weep knowing we've done what Jesus loved us enough to do. He set aside his comfort. He walked away from security and stature and glory. He came after us. Before he wept, he came after us when we were lost. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you did. When we were sinners, rebels in every sense of the word, wanting nothing to do with God, running, hiding, angry, you weren't dissuaded. You weren't discouraged. You came anyway at great cost, unimaginable cost. You came anyway. When we said no the first time, you came again. When we dug a hole, you pulled us out. When we hid ourselves, you revealed yourself. We rejoice, Lord, that you came for us. Teach us to do likewise. Teach us to continue your mission. Teach us to seek and to sacrifice that many would be saved before the time of weeping comes.